0: Welcome to the Wiggly Podcast. It's a special this week, a special from the Wiggly Sofa, sort of, the Wiggly Table. I'm Heather Gorringe.
1: I'm Richard. And I'm Farmer Phil. Richard who? Fishborn.
0: That's handy because we're talking about fishes this week. Here we are. Years ago, well weeks ago, we talked about Richard's peanuts.
1: Yeah, (laughs) 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 Yeah, we did, we did. And... uh, that makes for an interesting listening, actually.
0: Does it? Mm. Where did you go, then? Tell us all well, it, about
1: it. it. It seems like a long time ago now, uh, but I think the last couple of weeks have shot by But uh, I went to Guyana, and uh, contrary to what Karen thinks, it's not in Africa, it's in uh, South America. <laughs> it's uh, well, next, uh, close,
2: isn't it, Next to Venezuela, yeah. Neither <laughs> yeah. of them are near
1: Herefordshire. No, 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 it's a good old jaunt. So a mix of experiences, really. Mostly, the reason I went there was to catch huge fish, to catch a, a species uh, called an arapama gigas potentially the biggest-scale freshwater fish in the world. But a few, little, a few nice treats as well. On the way back, I met a fella that had been involved in some community work, working with uh, Amerindian communities to increase their peanut yields in the Rupanuni, which is an, an area of savannah in, uh, in Guyana. And so I had a fantastic chat with him.
0: Are there peanuts the peanuts that we use to feed the birds? <laughs> they, 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 they are. they go for something they very are, useful? They like? do,
1: yeah, the thing is, the Guyana don't really export much. And pretty much everything they grow is used in-house, so to speak. So the quality of their products, the quality of peanuts is very, very good. There are different types of peanuts, of course. Uh, a lot of their peanuts gets used for peanut butter and things like that. So that's quite interesting. And also, I was taken to a... Well, I suppose it would be like a little... It's like a social enterprise, almost like a city farm, just on the outskirts of Georgetown. And the chap had created a biodigester. It's a very simple affair, but hugely significant because it powered two houses and a generator purely by a methane emitted from a, a tank that was, I don't know, 25 yards long. And a meter and a half wide, uh, and it uh, had a little vermiculture set up So all these fantastic dendras wheeling their way through all the compost that they got. And also, he he was making compost using mixing chicken and cow manure and molasses. Molasses being the, the fuel for the Pharmaphyl bacteria. Uses really, those. yeah, yeah, that's would right. you
0: use those for pharmafilm?
1: Well, molasses is just an, another word for raw sugar.
3: It's very similar to black treacle as you would buy to use in cooking. It's raw sugar, and that's what bacteria or or any living organism really, it's the the raw unit of energy that drives them. So if you want bacteria to multiply, feed them sugar and molasses is a really great... I use it in Bokashi to multiply my bacteria and yeasts and so on that make up the mix that ferments my
1: Bokashi.
0: Right. Mm. So shall we go off on this adventure? Lord knows what will happen. Splashes, macaws, biodigesters, peanuts, ricardo and
2: allegedly the biggest fish ever caught.
0: (laughs) And the biggest fish ever caught. It's a Guyana special.
1: Right. Well, after three days of travel, we finally arrived in the jungle. And that's hacking you can hear in the background of the guys quite literally hacking their way through the bush. There's a pool that lies deep in the forest here that we're going to drag one of the boats through. Uh, we've just spent, uh, we've come about 40 miles upstream, a couple of aluminium boats with 15 horsepower engines. Fantastic scenery coming up through the jungle, we've seen all sorts of interesting things. There's literally a different species of bird every 400 metres. And we've uh, got tarpaulins up over the camp, and been bitten by a couple of mosquitoes already, there uh, probably will be millions of them. So we've laced ourselves up with mosquito repellent we've baited up the rods and we're going to go and try and catch a piranha for bait Uh, and some big catfish apparently so we're going to go out in the boat later on and see if we can catch some catfish but in the meantime we're going to go and see if we can catch our first Guyanan predator So we've just edged our way down to the side of the water James has cast out first cast of the trip i look downstream it's pretty majestic it's huge billowing clouds over a a massive rainforest there's a massive pond skaters in front of us millions of pond skaters never seen so many and ashley said that uh, oddly that fish don't eat them so they must taste disgusting anyway i'm gonna flick out a bait there's a few fish dappling the surface so you never know there might be a piranha just waiting to snaffle my lure So Asher, the, the reason there's so many fish in here now is it quite bequ- literally because they're sort of landlocked after the yeah, river's gone down?
3: No, sir, it's good habitat for fish, a lot of fish. Eh? A lot of fish come in from here, from the river, to breed and stuff like that during the season. Okay. I and mean, as the water recedes, they become locked off in here now. Watch the big one turn here. Oh wow! Yeah, you I saw, saw that. that yeah, 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 yeah. That one, so that's me. a nice fish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Watch the next one turn. Yeah, yeah. the boxer. Yeah, yeah, you yeah saw yeah, that? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's incredible. Small one, medium. Mm, so
1: it's like something out of a Johnny Weismuller film. It's absolutely astonishing. The sun's setting now, but it's so hot, and I'm dripping with sweat. I saw it's that. I wonder. The backs really come quite a way yeah. out of the water, don't they?
4: You never seen him before?
1: So. No, no. This is a whole new experience for me. <laughs> you don't get too many of these in England. you There's a macaws above us. Beautiful birds. Vivid scarlet chests. Well, we've just walked back from the lake anyway. Saw several Arapama turn. A couple of big ones as well. So now we're going to go and get the boat and uh, drag it through and ready for, for tomorrow. those are um, howler monkeys there's a couple of different family groups either side of the pond next to our camp apparently it's, it's only one or two individuals amongst the family groups that make that noise it's a kind of spooky noise it's not how I imagined it to be at all the sun's just coming up now the light's just breaking through across the horizon and the nighttime noises are changing for a few, a few bird songs. But generally speaking the day is so much quieter than the night. A throbbing sound you can hear in the background is a wasp nest a massive great nest about four foot long hanging down from a tree we've just eased our way under the tree birds you can hear in the background a screaming bird is a (coughs) caracara beautiful black bird red face white-throated raptor and the water is glistening off this nest and it's inundated with thousands of seriously fierce looking wasps i have no idea what, what type of wasps they are But that noise is most peculiar. (laughs) Giant otter, the sound of a giant otter, isn't that amazing? There's a giant otter right behind us, we've got a giant otter literally. 10 foot away from us. That is the sound of a giant otter, that grunting sound is the sound of a giant otter. Literally it's... Ten foot in front of me, ten foot in front of me, huge, four foot long, two, a pair of them. Look, look. That's amazing, just here. Can you believe that? It's a scarlet macaw. Well, no. we set up camp the day before yesterday at a place called Fish Pond, Appropriate enough, name because it's absolutely heaving with fish. And uh, the guys, on a, a little bit of an expedition to go off and dig the toilet and stuff like that, and they found uh, a caiman nest. So Ash is just taking me across. They're going you know, to creep across slowly. And, Hopefully Mother Cainan's not guarding the nest. She comes up at night, drags herself up the bank. You can see a track up the bank from a, a really shallow creek. Probably about 30 yards away from where we're camping.
3: And normally what happens is when she sees you get too close, she just comes rushing down into the water. And right, you're in a right. way, it's a little
1: disconcerting, you're sort of
3: scrambling to get out of her way.
1: Yeah, yeah, I reckon. Yeah, that must be a bit... Uh, nerve-wracking, isn't it, at times? <laughs> I mean, how big are they, in They're big, aren't they? I mean, the ones we've seen in the river, what, uh, what sort of length them? are they?
3: The males are, are a lot larger than the females. Right. The biggest ones we probably get around here are around 15 feet. Right. The biggest one we've caught on the project is, um, was 12 feet. And right. We've seen a few that are, we think are around 14 feet.
1: Right.
3: Well over 1,000 pounds.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's a big animal. Mm-hmm. Big enough to take a chunk out of your leg, that's a sure fact. This is amazing, Ash. So what we're looking at now is a is a huge heap of piled up leaf litter and twigs, and uh, and you can see the track that the female's made up to the edge of the nest. So what's she done here exactly, Ash?
3: Well, <clears throat> unlike um, most crocodiles, lay um, lay their eggs in the sand, right. same with turtles, and then they use um, the, the, the heat from the sun to incubate the eggs. Right, Cayman do it a little different. They um, Basically, make you know, it's basically a compost heap. This it so it is, they isn't pick it? Up All these <laughs> this leaf and um, vegetable material, and then they lay their eggs in the middle. And I suppose it's aerobic bacteria, whatever. The heat from the um, the leaf litter breaking down it actually incubates the eggs. Right. And
1: all, all the Cayman species do that. But, I mean, presumably the, the eggs hatch at uh, you know fairly uniform sort of time. I mean, how long do they take to hatch? But in they there?
3: take they take between 85 and 90 days for um for them to hatch. Okay. So it's quite a long time, yeah. isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's guarding this nest mm-hmm. over quite a long period.
3: And we've seen nests of the I mean, again when we're doing the research we've been looking at um, you know, what kind of materials they use in this area that you know, like in forest, gallery forest where we are in particular, they use a lot of this leaf and sticks. Sometimes you get black came out in the savannah ponds and they use um They'll use grass, you know, they'll break down okay. the grass and scrape up the grass and you have grass nests which are very different. Yeah, yeah. And one of the interesting things, obviously, with a lot of reptiles, when they lay their eggs, the temperature determines the sex. If you have a higher temperature, you can get more males and if the temperature is slightly lower and the nest, you get females. Really? The nest is warm and when we open the nest just now and you put your hand in your field, it's warm. But also, you know, if there's direct sunlight on the nest, that will change the temperature yeah. quite a bit. She'll come up and she'll do this all mostly in one night. Occasionally she might take two nights to build a nest and, right. um, and lay the eggs. Right. And then, um, you know, we've noticed that, like, because we'll come and we'll check the nest back again you know, a couple times each each year, yeah. each season then. And, um, you know, sometimes she comes and she sort of adjusts it a little bit, um, you know. And, I mean, we, we've sometimes noticed that when we've dug stuff in, because we, we put little hobos in, which are... Um, Thermometer that take a thermometer reading every 20 seconds or every half hour, or whatever you want, right? Um, over a period of three months, so we can see how the nest, how the temperature increases or decreases, um, stuff like that, right? And we've noticed sometimes that when we've dug in the nest, that she'll come back and sh- we've actually also seen where she's reopened re- the nest and you know, thrown out our hobo, really, and rebuilt the nest back again, so she's obviously realized that it was, you know, yeah. something different something in there, there yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? I suppose they could smell us as well. It's the smell,
3: yeah, for sure. I mean, we had them in a the Ziploc bag. We normally put them in the Ziploc bags. But for sure she can smell. Yeah. I and mean, they have a phenomenal sense of smell. So. Yeah,
1: yeah. So yeah. how deep are the eggs in this pile, then? Well,
3: as you see, the nest is, you know, probably about six feet across. five by six, and it's about two feet high. And the eggs are normally positioned somewhere in the centre. There's a, a sort of a chamber, a nesting chamber, then. Yeah. Um, and they're normally about a foot down from the top. Right. Um, let me have a look and let's
1: see where
3: we can find them. I'm mean, just putting your hand in here. Just put your hand in here, you can feel how warm it is already compared to the outside temperature. Oh,
1: it, is, it is really warm, isn't it? It is just quite literally like putting your hand inside a compost heap to, mm-hmm. to see if it's working properly. And that's, you know, that's mm-hmm. not not that's to should to it should be head. warmer than uh, than life under a, under a hen or something mm-hmm. like that, isn't it?
3: And there uh, is the top of the first clutch, first layer of eggs. Oh in.
1: wow! Look at that. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Look at those. Gosh! Look at all those eggs. So, how many eggs would you find in something like this? Uh, normally, there's about 30, but most we've ever found is 39. Right. I would say the average is probably in the late
3: 20s, early 30s.
1: And they're beautiful eggs, aren't they? They're, and they're oval, and large. I mean, that's the size of your the palm of your hand, really. Okay. They're long, aren't they? Yeah, we're getting close to 10 centimeters or so. Is there any way of being able to tell whether the eggs are fertile or not?
3: Yeah, earlier on in stage, in fact, you can see it here faintly, um, you get this banding, this sort of a black but Very, very if the eggs are like two or three days old, you can see it. There's normally a black band on each side here, sort of a banding,
1: right. um, which shows that they're fertile. They're so rough and hard. I mean, they're, presumably they're very robust then. I mean, I, I guess they've got to be if she's pushing mm-hmm. them all together and piling mm-hmm. leaf litter all over them. They need to be pretty tough. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I'd expect um, a reptile to lay soft-skinned eggs. I guess it's purely because I'm thinking mm-hmm. of turtles and whatnot. But well, some of the turtles
3: lay um, lay hard shells as well. Okay, it varies a bit. A lot of be most of the nests. Um, or a very large percentage of the nests are damaged by tegu lizards which are like a large monitor lizard right you know they're terrible for these caiman nests and, and turtle nests as well because they have a phenomenal sense of smell and yeah. they'll find this nest you know so every chance they'll find this one as well they literally dig in through the side here and they'll take out eggs yeah. and feed on them right and then we, again we make a note of that you know, yeah see how much how much damage is done to nests I would say at least two thirds of the nests that we we find are um, partially damaged. They don't necessarily always take all the eggs, right? But they'll they'll take a good percentage of them.
1: So they're at a disadvantage straight away. So oh, yeah. e- even the you know, the eggs are getting eaten before they yep. even the the young have hatched. And the young, I mean, they've I mean they're they're going to be really small, aren't they? Yeah, they'll be about you know, the nine inches or so long. Okay. So they'll scramble out of this nest and head there make their way down to the water. Down to the water. Do That's they get any protection from the parent after they? I think hatch? she's she's around.
3: Oh, when, once they are hatched, the mother is always around them. How much protection? I mean, I know again a lot of a lot of the baby came and fall prey to, to jabiru storks and herons, and um, so again, you know, once they're hatched, they still have a you know a real gauntlet to run before yeah. they get around. I should imagine it's only maybe two or three percent that ever make it to adulthood. Yeah.
1: So, well, I guess we better cover it back mm-hmm. over again. Superb.
3: Just build it back. One of the things we're normally very careful of is um, is the dust, just to make sure it all goes back in the nest, because any smell that remains outside is, you know, obviously a big attractant to um, yeah, lizards and yeah. stuff that make prey on the nest.
1: Right. <laughs> That's the sound of a red-tailed catfish. Banana fish. They go like stink. This guy, the most beautiful fish. They, they fight like, like nothing on earth. I've just got this one out. We're going to put it back in a minute. But as I'm looking at it, it's got the most vivid, beautiful red fins. And quite literally a banana-coloured undercarriage. They make the most peculiar noises. Fantastic big whiskers. And Kevin is with me here. He's stroking it to make it, make it more noise. Uh, is that a nice one, Kev? Yes. Yeah. Nice is that bigger than James's? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a lot smaller. Are we going to put that back? Are they good to eat? Those? Yes. Yeah. Should we put it back?
0: <laughs>
1: okay. Okay. It's amazing this place. In the daytime, it's so quiet; you can't hear anything at all—the you know, odd bird and stuff. But at night, it's just deafening—the sound of frogs and cicadas no line coming back on here at all, I don't know. Really? You need to tighten the drag up a bit. No, he's still taking them. He's still going down the river, yeah? Look at that. that was a big fish there, then. Oh, he still wants more. Whoa! Wow! <laughs> God, that's taking some... That's just one kick of its tail and it's away. Big fish, man. James has been on this fish now for a good 10 minutes. No, massive fish just hanging into the boat. It's just coming up to the surface now. Oh, Christ! <laughs> Christ almighty, I thought I was coming into the boat then. My God.
3: I've got <sighs> my camera up.
1: Uh, yeah, we're all soaked now. I've got water all over this iPod and everything. I'm going to put this away until we... Uh, Get the photos, I'm going to cut my, do my bag up, because it's getting well Just <laughs> put the bag in the water. Well done, got we a hold of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, well done. Oh. Yeah, well, what a picture. What a fish! That's a stunning fish. Come, come hold it now, hold it here now. hold it now. Just like how I'm hauling it, so how you holding it towards you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just hold. All
4: right,
0: then. <laughs>
1: okay. Jesus That's Christ here? Right. Right. That's a big kipper. <laughs> Have you got some pictures of like this? <laughs> Have you got a camera at me? I'm this? taking some photos now, man. Cool. Hang, on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, man. Hang on, let's just take some
0: photos Jesus quick. Hang on, I'm going to turn funny this, funny I'm this funny thing funny. off.
1: OK, well so we just wandered up to this other spot. Ron's just uh, it's going to show me a, a biodigester that he's made. I mean, this is a real feat of ingenuity. How have you made this? I mean, what, what was the purpose of this originally?
4: Um, well, um, we're, we're in a in livestock farm. OK. Part of it has been to get rid to the show farmers so you can save on gas or electricity using some of your agricultural waste, coal manure as a waste. This was in the country of 20 to 30 years, 40 years probably ago, using concrete. Right. Right, and that being very costly, we just divert to this plastic bag. This is the first in Guyana to be set up using a plastic bag. Oh, wow. And we um, assume that we will get 20 years from it. Okay. That's the information we receive. It's very simple to use it. It's um, 30 feet long, double plastic. Yeah. And we mix the cow manure in a slurry form with yeah. water. Okay. it from that tank, which is, like a funnel leading to it. Yeah. After it is really established, take about 40 to 50 days to fill up the right amount of gas. Yeah. And when this is full of gas, it's extremely tight. Extremely tight. Yeah, right yeah, the it, it is. yeah. Here yeah. we have a security valve. When that is extremely full, some of the gas are come here. You can hear the sound like, you know, you held something in the water, we have it some. Right, right. This means that there is ex- excessive gas, the, the excess will come from here. Okay. If you look that way, you see we have two pipes. Yeah. Two pipes go into a house that way, yep. the house that way, yep. and it's where the farm
1: hands cook. Right. We also run a generator, a normal generator on it. That relatively small area supplies the gas for the needs of two houses, two, two houses and, and houses. a generator. Yes. That's quite amazing. So you, so really, as far as gas is concerned, are you completely self-sufficient? Yes, I have. That's a, that's a real impressive feat. And it's relatively simple as well, isn't it? Very
4: simple. You don't need to use an arm. Um, like what we have here, the two sides, we have two, uh, like a box. You don't need to have a box. You just dig a hole. But when we was doing this, it was raining before the shed was here, Yeah. and the soil was very loosey. So rather than the gas had to build up in the plastic bag, Coming up we started the go sideways Right. We just had to fit that. But being a very uh, low cost, we don't advise farmers, you know, that you have to buy material to make a box really. Okay. And the other one we set up in canal, the next part from here, another part in our country. It's a hole and you fit the bag inside. Right. Using plastic, plastic bag and P V C pipe. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, how much does that thing
1: cost you to make in total um, to reckon? It's about fifty thousand in a dollar. Fifty thousand guy in a dollar. If you had to pay for a gas, how much would, it, how much would you be paying, say, um, a month for gas? For gas. A normal household would use like 20-pound
4: cylinder gas, which is about um, $3,000 in the market. 3000 okay. Yes. Uh, per
1: month? Per month. So approximately, this, this approximately. thing is paid for itself within yes. 12 months, easily? Yes. Uh, That's impressive. Um, yeah, yeah. You know that um,
4: no cow manure in this farm is being wasted. That's Brilliant. Yeah, it really is. We'll really take a quick look. Yeah, yeah, we will, we'll have a look. OK, let's,
1: let's go. go. Well, after a fantastic farm visit, we're just driving back now, but uh, Jerry McGrath uh, was involved in helping peanut farmers, uh, strangely enough, grow, uh, increase their yields in the Rupununi. Rupununi is an area that I've just been to and I've seen uh, peanuts growing. Uh, that was quite an education, actually. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to to speak to anybody about it. But as coincidence will have it, Jerry is a is a is a uh, a knowledge par excellence of all things peanut-like. So, um, I mean, how did you get involved with that, Jerry, initially in being able to sort of help the indigenous people increase their the yields
2: of, of peanuts? Well, in 1998, the the uh authorities in Region 9 organized a workshop and they brought Amerindians from all over the, the region from 50 different communities to discuss problems and needs for agriculture development. And at the end of that workshop the meeting decided that the number one priority was improving the productivity, the production of peanuts yes. and cassava. Okay, Peanuts as a cash crop Saba as a food crop. Right, right. So at that point in time, I was the representative of the Inter-American Institute for Cooperation on Agriculture. So our organization promised to provide technical support. And following that, I contacted uh, some peanut specialists in Florida and Georgia. Yeah, and they sent two teams down. Was reached that peanut production could be increased from an average of about 900 pounds per acre, which was, was what they were producing at the present time, yeah. or, you know, in, in 1998. Yeah, sure. Uh, and they thought they could increase the productivity up to 3,000 pounds. And then, following that mission, another team came down of extension officers with experience in peanut production, and they did a one-week training program for peanut farmers in how to go about increasing production and productivity. Nice. And then after that, uh, the Agency for International Development provided some funding through a program called Peanut Crisp, okay. which is managed through the University of Georgia. And so a project was uh, initiated then assistance to peanut farmers over a five-year period right and it was about that time that I retired from the IICA and I was asked to be the coordinator of that peanut project then okay
1: that's a wonderful thing to have achieved now you know I was talking to you a bit about uh, balmy British people um, where we feed birds on peanuts in fact I'm wondering whether or not Um, the the majority of peanuts that enter the UK end up on on, uh, hanging from bird tables and we've had a a thing that's in the back of a lot of people's minds these avid bird feeders um, afrotoxins Mm -hmm. now I was reading through your your fantastic document earlier on and uh, there was a mention of afrotoxins and the ways and means of reducing uh, the peanuts becoming infected can you just give me an inkling as to exactly what afrotoxins are
2: aflatoxin is uh comes from um, a fungus right. that grows right. on the uh, grows on the peanut. Okay. This particular fungus grows on the peanut uh, when the peanut is not dried properly. Right. So when there's too much moisture. So okay. we usually try to uh ensure that the farmers dry their peanuts down to about 10% moisture content. Yeah. And at 10% or so these peanuts can be stored for one year without any any problem at all with, okay. with aflatoxin. Right. We have found peanuts that have been, uh, maybe because the peanuts were rained on after they were dried yeah. because the storage was not proper and moisture somehow got onto the bags of peanuts. Right. Under those cases where there is excess humidity, the aflatoxin does occur, the, well, the, the fungus will grow and that'll cause the, the, the aflatoxin you can notice it because it's kind of a, a powdery mildew, blackish in color. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of a greenish black. Okay. If peanuts that have aflatoxin are consumed, why, it could be deadly. Right. Internationally, I think there's been outbreaks in Africa where hundreds of people have been, been killed. So it, it's something serious. S- significant, that, isn't it? Uh, that you have to think about. But in the area where the peanuts are grown in the Rupununi, It's really not of great concern, because as far as we can tell, there's never been anyone who has got sick or died from peanuts. We have not found one case of children or adults that are allergic to peanuts. That's encouraging. And we think that one of the main reasons for that is that peanuts are growing during the rainy season, Yeah. and they tend to be harvested in September and October, which is the beginning of the dry season. Okay. From September to October to to January, you don't get any rain to speak of. Right, right. An occasional shower, but yeah. nothing, no heavy rains. Right. And because of that, uh, studies have been done in the Rupanuni and have showed that the Rupanuni is an ideal location for solar drying because there is the humidity is so low. And the drying conditions are perfect, yeah, I you see. know, for uh, for solar drying. Yeah, sure. So that means that most farmers, without even thinking about it too much, their peanuts are dried, and then they put their peanuts in storage, and the conditions do not exist to grow this fungus, which creates the the aflatoxin. Nice. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Joey. That's
1: superb. Yeah. Cheers.
0: So, that was our tour of South America. Thank you, Ricardo. I wish I'd been there with you.
1: Yes. I'm sure you'd
0: have a lot
1: of fun in that boat. (laughs) He (laughs) would have done you. Oh, you'd have loved it, yeah. (laughs) I don't know what he got up to. I have seen one photo of him in this fishing escapade, (laughs) and he looks even balmier than
2: I've seen him ever before. And
0: the biggest congratulations of all must go from the whole Wiggly team to James Heggie. Well done, James, for putting up with him for a whole three (laughs) weeks. Bye from the Wiggly Safer. Till next week. Subscribe with iTunes. Bye.
1: Bye. Bye from me. Talk to the animals. <laughs> <laughs> I'm <laughs> trying to get a recording. you. I'm talking oh, to them. A Until
0: they understand me.
1: People are going to be there are going to be decipher between you and the f-ing otter. <laughs> no, they did. That was. That Stunning photographs there. Okay, we've probably got to see.